Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights here with Frank Costello. We're going to talk about Frank Nagy, who was an amazing advanced collector in the Detroit area that I got to know when I was up in that area, and Frank did too. We both had some very fun and positive interactions with a larger-than-life collector, one of the icons of the early hobby. But thanks, sponsors, Topps Panini and Upper Deck, Heritage Auctions, Hugs and Scott Auctions, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, Comsey.com, Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication. I think Frank Nagy even predates Tops. <laughs> he was collecting before Tops. Frank Nagy was there before any of them, before you and me, older than us, but a real ambassador for the hobby. When he came into a card show, he just floated around. So Frank, uh, welcome to the show. I'm eager to hear your perspective. This is unrehearsed, but uh, we both had admiration for uh, Frank and his uh, amazing collection. Frank, what, what's your take on the other Frank? My first indoctrination to Frank Nagy was pretty funny. Uh, I did a sport card show at the San Suchi Hall, and it was the first sport card show I'd ever done in my life. This was probably 1976. And I just had a pile of cards on my table, didn't sort anything out. And this older gentleman came up to my table and he bought all my tigers. And I thought that was really great. I think I sold them to him for about a nickel a piece. I I was excited because I made some sales and got rid of some cards. And I'm already thinking about what I'm going to buy next with this extra money I have. When one of the other dealers came up to me and said, hey, can I ask you a question? I said, yeah, sure. Go ahead. He said, you know who that man was that walked up to your table? I said, I have absolutely no idea. He said, "Did, did you just sell him all your tiger cards? And I said, yeah, I sold him every single one of them. And he said, what'd you get for him? And I said, a nickel a piece. He said, first of all, that gentleman's Frank Nagy, and he's got the most prime collection you could ever think of. And second of all, he just took you because this is Detroit and we charge extra for Tiger cards. He said, you probably could have got 10 to 15 cents a piece for those Tiger cards instead of just a nickel. So that was my first indoctrination to Frank. And then from there on, I knew who he was. And when he came into a room, I I was a little better prepared for if he came up to my table and was interested in purchasing something. I'm guessing he already had those cards, but he had a very popular mail auction in those years that was... I think sporadic in the 70s, but he'd have auction catalogs that were run along, strung together. He, he really didn't use punctuation. So he had this big, long list of, of lots and cards that he had for sale. And so he probably just passed them through because I've been in his auctions before and there were some nuggets in there. Now you wish you'd have bought everything that was for sale. Well, I know one of the things he was doing in my era there in, in let's say, mid-70s to late 70s was he was doing some auctions with Charlie Brooks in the uh, the Sport Hobbyist magazine, if you remember. And, and him and Charlie put that whole thing together. So he was still doing auctions, but probably not quite as many as when you were first indoctrinated with him. He was just, him and Charlie were doing some things and they were trying to, especially Charlie w- was trying to get the Sport Hobbyist magazine uh, a little bit more mainstream. I went over to Frank Nagy's house and I just am realizing that we went down to his card room And he had these drawers and he said, I could look around and they were like drawers and more than one of them had complete sets of 52 tops with everything. And I just remember funny things like this. I remember he left the room. Now, I'm sure there weren't any secret cameras and I'm an honest guy and everything, but I'm just realizing he left the room, went to the bathroom or get a a glass of tea or something. He came back. Now, of course, I couldn't have stuffed any mantles in my pockets or anything, but and and it wasn't even a thing then. It it wasn't about the superstars as much. This is 75-ish, 76, but he had multiple sets that he'd gotten. His claim to fame is he almost lost his marriage from spending the life savings on buying out one of the other really big-time collectors that he, he had to drive out there and barely made it back on the weight of the 
cardboard in his trunk and back seat and front seat and everything from, I think that was in the late forties, but and he paid his life savings, but now it'd be millions of dollars. But like you said, he collected, he had a lot of non-sport that he was proud of. More ephemera than memorabilia, as I recall. He liked paper stuff. Paper stuff, yeah. Yeah, more than gloves and bats and balls and things like that. But I never had a bad experience with him trading. In fact, I almost could be accused of taking advantage of him. I had this display piece that he wanted that he asked, and he he traded me for it. And then it turned out later that the display piece was not a display piece. It was It was a magazine piece, but it was all under plastic somehow it it had been uh, hermetically sealed and when he opened it up it was he'd been duped but i'd been duped too because i'd got it from somebody else but like i said he was old school we unwound the trade which again you could do i'm in my 20s and he probably he'd be more than 100 now right yeah he would be because I, when i knew him he was probably 59 to 60 years I think old 30 was 30 years older than me so yeah. he would be over 100 now and he's passed away now. He was actually Bill Mastro's mentor. Yes. He talked about having a mentor. Bill Mastro was accused of being an adopted son. <laughs> That's how much he he locked in. And when the Mastro auctions with Don Steinbeck got going, a, a lot of stuff came from Frank and his wife, Louise, who was mm-hmm. at the shows. And he didn't lose his marriage, he, he no. was, uh, but he was an auto worker. I don't remember whether he was at Ford or Chrysler's, but I do remember, too, he was real astute at buying collections. I don't know if you remember Bill Carroll. Bill, would, Bill would have been, if Frank was, Similar let's say, age, maybe a little older. Yeah, yeah. Frank was 59 or 60. Bill was in his 70s. Definitely. Well, when Bill passed away, the first person his wife called was Frank. And, and Frank went over there and bought, after Frank went through it, Bill's wife called me because she was a friend of my aunt's and knew that I collected cards and knew that I knew Bill. And, and I bought the rest of the stuff. There was still a lot of really good stuff in there, but Nagy, Frank took, took let's say, the prime cards and, and the prime ephemera and things like that that Bill had in the collection. Even what he left would have been wonderful cards for whoever was going to buy it next. Fortunately, I was the one that bought it next, so <laughs> I, I still got a lot of good things out of it. Yeah, well, I remember Billy Carroll, yeah. That was the order of the day when collections weren't really shopped around. It, it, it was somebody at first dibs. And uh, generally, they bought the whole thing. So that's unusual, but maybe that happened under some other kind of circumstance. But I never saw Frank Nagy with it. You've seen the ads for Untuck It? Yeah. <laughs> I never saw him with a tucked-in shirt. No, never. But when I was over at his house, he was just as proud of his, I don't know, Mars Attacks or yes. Three Stooges or but the golden age of collecting for all that stuff was in the 40s and 50s, I think. And that was the strength of his collection. I don't remember him getting that excited about anything in the 60s, but... 50s and 40s and 30s. From what I remember, he was real meticulous about how everything was stored and, and uh, how he had it in his collection. I never had the, the good fortune to go to his house, but I was part of the Motor City Collectors Club, and he would show up sometimes with some things to trade with other collectors. I could see that when he would bring things in, it was extremely well organized. It looked good. He, he paid attention to detail with his card collecting. He just didn't throw things together or not pay attention to how things were stored. I thought that was neat because back in those days, we were just putting everything in shoe boxes and maybe wooden boxes or whatever we could we found or had to our avail, where he seemed to have things maybe in booklets, like photo booklets, I want to say, that type of thing. When I was at his house, he had a kind of unassuming house, which it's actually better to have an unassuming house if you've got a really valuable collection. Yeah. Uh, but he, he had an unassuming house, a nice house, but he had some built-ins in his cards. He had some kind of drawers made that were a little bit bigger than card size. 
And so he could pull out a drawer and there'd be a 52 top set, 407 cards. Like I said, he was uh, kind of salt of the earth, a regular guy that had hit it big, but he didn't act like it. He just walked around. I won't say I never saw him without a cigarette halfway out of his mouth, but his cigarette is just lit. And I, I never saw him light it or take it out of his mouth. He just would talk with a cigarette half out of his mouth. When he come to Charlie's store too, he yeah. was always really nice. You could talk to him. I agree with you. He never big timed you. He was unassuming. When you look, he was just a regular guy. And well, that's what was so, I think, so neat about him. You could ask him questions. You could ask him about certain cards back in the 30s and the 20s and the early 1900s. He was a great resource for knowledge then too, because there was a lot of things that I didn't know about older cards, but I was interested in them because I knew when I was a kid, my dad collected Gaudis. But what happened before the Gaudis? What were the kind of cards that people collected in the early 1900s, the 20s, the early 30s, things like that? He was just a, a wealth of knowledge, too. If you asked him a question, you were going to get an answer, and you were going to get a real answer. And he he was always very nice to people like me. Me, too. And I was just some young 20-something guy that was an assistant professor who was coming up on the weekends for shows. And I guess somewhere in there, I started doing the price guide surveys and probably tapped into him for some of that. But I don't remember once I got going with the magazines and the books that he was as as active by the time you get into the mid 80s and things like that but in the 70s when i was there he was always helpful and again very knowledgeable and what we don't realize is that the knowledge that he had he didn't like look it up in a book <laughs> he lived it he was telling you about his experience and not oh let me check the answer for that by looking up in a catalog or something he basically had firsthand knowledge of a lot of this stuff you were there i mean it, there wasn't a lot of money changing hands if you went to a card show and you came back with a thousand bucks I don't even know what that'd be like now, but that you sold a lot of cards. Definitely. And I don't really remember him ever having a table at the no, show. I, even when Charlie used to have the, right. the shows at the store, he just came in to talk to people. He'd float. He'd float. Yeah. 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 And just he had not a care in the world. On the other hand, he did have a lot of cards. So it's not yeah, he did. He did, he did more. <laughs> that's why when I had something on my table that he liked, I, I don't remember him ever wanting to buy anything. It was just, if you ever want to get rid of that, I had some cons wieners that were some of the tougher variations. And he knew Mastro wanted those, who was another young whippersnapper back in those yeah. days. But he'd want to trade for him. But he, his trade material, oh my goodness. But he also knew what he had. One thing I learned from him and from another sports card insight is I don't think he ever traded scarce stuff for not scarce stuff. If you had a rare piece, he would trade you something, but maybe not quite as rare. I learned that. Don't trade whatever Volkswagens for Cadillacs, or you actually want to do that. You want to trade a whole bunch of lesser value cards you can easily replace. But if I had something at my table, and I didn't that often because I was more of a collector and I don't usually have two of a scarce card, but if I ever did, he, he had the eye. He was on it. And he, I, I'll trade you for something. I remember being over at his house that time. It was to consummate the trade. He was going to show me some stuff that he had for trade. It was just one of the highlights of my collecting career. And he's been gone for, what would you say, 30, 35 Probably. years? Yeah, 30 to 35 years. Yeah. In the late 80s, perhaps? Yes. Yeah, I think it was like 88, 89, somewhere right in there. And then my understanding, too, after that is that his sons sold off some of the stuff to Mastro. And um, Definitely. I'm pretty sure that that a, a good percentage of what he had left went to Mastro. Yeah. And then I, the kids never came around to shows after that. It was just pretty much when he was alive, it was strictly something he really enjoyed. Though, I will tell you, I do remember him uh, writing an article for the Sport Hobbyist about collecting as a family. And he talked about that. And yeah, how what a nice thing that is to do for a father and a son to be collectors. That's very positive. I, like I said, I saw Louise after the fact 
who had realized what an astute businessman her husband had been, <laughs> uh, even though he got out way ahead of the curve. And like I say, Bill Mastro definitely knew that, but can be a family thing. And that's great. I wish that there'd been some of these opportunities to get more out of him in terms of uh, the written record of some of his great stories. More nowadays, it's easier with digital media and all that photos. But again, a real icon in the industry and somebody that I really respected and really like I said, was a mentor to me as well. I had several mentors, but anything he wanted to share about the industry, I wanted to listen. So he knew what was tougher. And uh, again, like I said, firsthand knowledge. Frank, I appreciate it, us going down memory lane about another Frank that that uh, you knew and I knew. And we, we had our episodes with him. But uh, <laughs> thanks, listeners. If you hear the name Frank Nagy, he was a real person, larger than life, and uh, was a real credit to our industry, real vision for what the hobby was to become, that he stepped out in faith and, and put his life savings on the line for something now that looks like a no-brainer, but it wasn't then. Again, thanks, Frank. Be Thank back you. tomorrow with another episode. The man-